Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, my name is John Paul Kermy. I am a breathwork teacher. I train people on how to teach breathwork as well. I'm really excited to be doing this new podcast with my good friend Feldy called Hangups, where we're going to help you change your life. We're going to show you how to transform your life with different tools. That's right. I'm John Feldman. I'm in a band called Goldfinger. John Paul taught me breathwork. It changed my life. I have struggled with anxiety and depression throughout my life, and I've gotten through it. This is a solution-based show. We're talking about solutions to problems today. everybody. John Paul Kermy here, Hangups Podcast. I'm here with my two good friends, John Feldy, and today we have our guest, Chad Lowe, on. I'm super excited to have Chad Lowe on. He is an amazing friend of Feldy and I, and um, he's an actor, writer, director. I mean, he does it all. He's won an Emmy Award, Emmy Award for the show Life Goes On. He's been on Melrose Place. He was in the movie Unforgiven, which I love. What are you doing these days, Chad? What's going on? What's, what are you, are you working? Are you just spending time with the family, with the three girls, your three beautiful daughters? Uh, first of all, hey, what's happening, John Paul? Good to see you. Great to good see to hear you. you. Yeah, Feldy, you, good to, it's, been, it's been a while. I know, I miss you too. Feldy, good to hear you too. Chad! What's Woo! up? All right, um, so yeah, guys, it's a crazy time, uh, isn't it? Isn't this just a crazy, wacky, zany time? It's it. I, I, you know, I'm I've got my kids at home. I've got school going in a couple different rooms. Uh, I've got, uh, you know, I'm challenged when it, I'm such a Luddite when it comes to technology. So thank God my wife is around to help with Zoom and hooking people up to devices and syncing them to printers. And, all. you know, it's just crazy. But we're healthy. Uh, and we're blessed in that regard because I know a lot of people have been struggling. I have a lot of friends who've had this COVID and I have a couple of friends who've died from it. So it's, it's very real. Wear your mask, take it seriously, but also live your life. Chad, we you were know, talking before it, you came on that I, I got to do this brain conference. I'm speaking at this brain conference after this. And I'm like, I'm going to, I got a fucking GED and I'm speaking at a brain conference. <laughs> like, this, so I think my kids are going to be just fine. Like, I got to look at that. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't even, I don't think I made it through the 10th grade. And I'm, oh, you know, with all these doctors it, and everything like that. And now when I do my teacher trainings or when I used to do the teacher trainings live, I would have doctors and therapists and PhDs and MDs in my thing. And I'm like, I can't believe these people are learning from me. So like, who knows what the world fucking holds for people. I, I, I can completely relate to that. Sometimes when I'm directing and all of a sudden I get the attention of the entire crew and cast and I just have this feeling of like, oh, that's it. They've totally figured it out. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna ask for my card. 
they're going to see that I'm totally not qualified and I'm making this shit up on the fly and it's going to be over. There'll be mutiny. And I'm sure you have that when you look out sometimes and you see all those big brains, but you know, you're right. It's like, I'm not stressed at all about my kids going to college or where they're going to go to college or like, I just, because like you said, I mean, look at us, we've, we're blessed. We've done pretty darn well in our chosen fields. And, uh, yeah, but there for the grace of God, go I. I mean, I I wasn't smoking the stucco. I, John, I wish you had had turned me on to that because I would have tried that for sure. I definitely <laughs> would have would have smoked. You must have smoked so much asbestos. I I oh. actually was doing the liquid paper. I was sniffing the liquid paper. I figured out that would give me a tiny little buzz. Yeah. I sniffed gas in the in the <laughs> shed. I would get I would huff gas in the shed and my mother ca caught me one time. She's like, why does it smell like gas in here? I was like, I spilled the gas, you know? And <laughs> my mom would, my mom would try and make fucking pies and she'd have the whipped cream from the refrigerator and be like, oh. there'd be no, there'd be no air left. Every time she'd be like, what is wrong with this grocery store? All of, they don't have any air in any of their whipped cream. I'm like, yeah, it's Ralph's mom. It's, it's gotta be Ralph's. They're just not selling the right whipped cream. Back in the day, it was Hughes. Remember Hughes Market? Yeah, Hughes Market, absolutely. And they John's Market to J-O-N, yeah. It was, they never uh, had any any gas in any of their whipped cream. We had the same problem in my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any store my mom would take me to, every whipped cream can would be fucking gone. So Chad, I'm wondering, so you direct, I, I hear amazing things about you as a director. Are you enjoying directing more than acting or is it just different, just something different? You know, I feel like being an actor, you use you have such a singular focus. I feel like as an actor, at least for me, when I'm, when I'm acting, it's focused on the role and that's that role and, and that role in telling the story. And so I actually found directing because I got tired of just being focused on one thing and part of my ADHD probably, but I always wanted to be involved in telling stories and being a storyteller. And, uh, I, I, I was one of those actors who, you know, would show up and then at wrap at the end of the day, I'd, I'd want to stay and I'd want to do more. And, you know, if I ever got done early, I'd always want to hang around and see what everybody else was doing. So I realized pretty quickly that there's a limit to what one actor can do when telling the whole of the story. And so I kind of found my way into directing. And then of course I realized there's a limit to what one director can do when coming <laughs> to tell a story, because it's really one, one kind of, it's a great ensemble of people who come together and, you know, it takes all parts to, to make a whole for, for making and to telling any story, really. I, I wonder, John, if it's the same thing for you when you're, you know, when you're making a record, it's like, you still need all the, all the cats to play and you still need help with the instruments and the boards and mixing and, or, or maybe John, maybe you just do all that. All these, the overlord, he does it all. He just does every part of <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Look, I, you know, um, I, I think I, you and I have very similar journeys because I've, I've been in a band my whole life. I've been in a band and I always had to deal with the personalities of different, um, you know, different band members wanting to have, you know, the fucking big drum part here and the guitar solo here. And it's like, you're, you're taking away from the message of the song. I want to make sure people can connect with the lyric and the melody. And if you're soloing on top of like the, you know, the, the third verse, which connects the whole story together. And so I struggled with that my whole life. And I became a producer the same way you just described being, becoming a director. So I could really kind of, 
you know, direct the whole album, you know, to a certain ex extent. I could kind of be there to guide and say, look, maybe you do your guitar solo four bars later when the vocal takes a break, or maybe, you know, the drum part can go off, but maybe it's a different song, you know, and be able to help guide where I don't have such um, where, where it's not my own project, where it's someone else's project that I can kind of be an outsider looking in saying, look, you have asked me to produce this. This is your vision. And if you want that vision, this is the way we should probably do it. So I, but I, but, but thank God I learned how to engineer. I learned how to mix. I learned how to do all that stuff so I can do it all, which I don't know. I'm sure you probably are a hands-on director as well when it comes to all of it, editing and the whole thing. Uh, actually, you know, it's funny is being uh, my friend, I have a friend named Russ Teitelman, who was a very prolific produce, record producer back in the Warner Brothers days. It was Lenny Warnaker and Russ Teitelman, and they did all like early James Taylor and all that he did the Steve Winwood Higher Love album. And, and so anyway, I had the chance to watch him in the studio produce. And I realized record producers are really like more like record directors, like just to what you were saying, John, because I was watching him work with uh, Keb Moe, you know, the drummer or the, the lead guitar player. And he had Jim Keltner on drums. And I was watching him kind of orchestrate these wildly talented people and get the best out of them and then figure out how it all fit together. So I feel like that's kind of what a, a film or TV director does as well. I was going to say, Feldy and I were talking about not taking it personal. And I was saying, you know, as an actor, it's so hard, you know, when people's like, I don't like you or I don't like your face or your acting or whatever, like not taking it personal. You know, when Pete, it's personal rejection, they don't want to work with you. They don't want you on their project or whatever. And I feel yeah. that sometimes. But what I've learned as a teacher is it's like, you know, nothing is really about me. It's never about me. Even when, even when they're like, I literally don't like you, you bother me. It's still about them because they're looking through their experience and their lens and all the things that have happened to them along the way. It's still about them. And that's a really hard concept to get your mind around and then to actually live. Feldy's making wow. a face like he's like, fuck you, that's not true. No, we were talking about this before and, and I, I, I'm sure you have a lot of personal experience, but yesterday I, um, you know, I was, I was working with this, you know, kind of big pop artist and I brought in this other songwriter. So there's three of us, there's the artist, there's me and there's a lyricist in the room. And the, the artist's manager called me yesterday and he said, uh, you know, uh, the artist is just going to work with the lyricist that you brought in, but doesn't want to work with you anymore. And it's like, fuck, you know, how do you not take that personally? And this, this happens yeah. all the fucking time, you know, and how do you deal with it? Well, that's interesting. We're not, we're talking about how to handle rejection, right? Or, yeah. or is, is it even, as you said, John Paul, is it even actually rejection? I mean, if it's not about you, that's a, that's a pretty evolved place to get to. I'm not sure I'm, I would be able to get there. I, one of the things I had an acting coach early on who told me, he said, you know, the difference between successful people in this business and people who aren't successful. And he said that the people who have had long-term success have not let their perceived failures stop them from trying to achieve their goals. Um, and I really, that really stuck with me because there is so much rejection and it is so hard not to take it personally. And if you're at all, and I don't think creatives or artists have the market on this, but if you are drawn to the arts, you usually have a certain sensitivity 
and you usually have a vulnerability. And frankly, to be good, I think, especially as an actor, I can speak from that perspective. You have to be able to be vulnerable. You have to be able to kind of step up. You hear them say they have stepping up on the on kind of the tight wire and without a net and you have to risk. And every time you go in to audition or you perform in any capacity, there's a certain vulnerability to that. So then to turn around and be judged when you feel like you've opened yourself up so much can be so debilitating. And yeah. frankly, it takes a toll. I mean, it def I can say from my perspective, it's, it's certainly taken a toll on me. And one of the things about going over from acting to directing that, that I found most fascinating was, uh, and maddening. I, I thought, well, once I start directing, I won't feel the same way. I won't be as vulnerable. I won't feel as insecure. Um, and I can just sit back and watch these artists. And, and yet every time I'm directing and there's, I, I come to the set with nerves in the morning, I'm nervous. And that blew my mind. I thought, wait, all these years, my directors have had nerves and been nervous too, and been vulnerable. So I'm just as vulnerable and just as nervous when I'm directing as I am when I'm acting. And that's kind of a bummer. Cause I thought, I thought I could be done with all of that. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think I'm, I think I'm one of the best breathwork teachers on the planet. And I don't say that out of ego. I just feel like I've really put the work in and, um, and I get vulnerable every class and that's why people come. But I also, I also just say whatever the fuck I want, you know? And I still get nervous when I go to teach a class, even if it's online now. I mean, cause it's all, it's only online right now. And sometimes I'm like, oh, what if something goes wrong or this or that? Mm. It's just, it's, I don't know if that ever goes away when you're working, when you're doing what you love to do, when you're putting yourself out there. And I don't think, I, I, I read something the other day cause I was totally pissed off about this this thing but it said like if you want if you don't want to be criticized then do fucking nothing with your life yeah. <laughs> and then be criticized for doing nothing right exactly <laughs> yeah I, I was thinking like they say success is the best revenge and it's like look i i get it you know in those situations where someone kind of cuts you out or you're um or, or some or they say something better is going to come and it's not like it's not like those statements are wrong, but it's tough when you see these people that you resent or that you've maybe had a falling out with or that, you're, that you don't work with anymore and you watch them succeed and you go, fuck, they're, so they're getting revenge because they're, they're, they're on a more successful project than I am. So it's sort of like catch 22 when, when someone says, you know, success is the best revenge. Look, for me, all I can do is focus on myself. That's all I can do is like, how do I, when I've got someone in my life that wants, doesn't want to work with me anymore, or that like, you know, I bring into a project and then they go off and do something without me. Like all I can do is focus on prayer, meditation, working out, and then go back to my studio and just write, you know, that's what I can do. What can I control in this? And that's the biggest challenge. Like, I guess it's a separate subject, but maybe it's the same thing when it comes to politics. Like how much do I really want to debate something I can't control on any level. You know, I voted, I did my part, and then I got to let it go. I've got to let it go because I can't control the results. You know, and so today I fucking boxed like a motherfucker. I prayed like a motherfucker. I went for a fucking, you know, three minute, 53 degree pool cold plunge, and I feel totally different than I did when I woke up with my head chattering at me. You're not enough. It's never going to work out. That's my first thoughts. And I took the action. I did all that shit. And now I feel 180 degrees different. You know, you did all that before 10 o'clock in the morning. Oh, fuck. Yeah, I did. Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm a slacker. 
I got to do the same. I'm up at like 4.30 and I got to do, I got got a whole routine. I don't want to be up at 4.30. I used to have to get up for when I was a personal trainer and now I don't have to get up at all. I could stay in bed all fucking day. I only work on Sunday. And so, and now I wake up at 4.30, just like, oh God. And I, so I roll out of bed and I do my, you know, physical therapy exercises. I pray, I meditate, I do uh, some breathing stuff. And then I get to work. I mean, I don't have a choice. So you guys- have you guys have routines that you stick to yeah. pretty pretty religiously yeah do, do you, you want, have what do you do if you want to win the day you got to win the morning i i'm pretty undisciplined when it comes to all of this and uh, i know that it works when i work it like when i do take the time and get up and get at the day i i definitely feel much better um but of late it's been a struggle to wake up, frankly. Um, I mean, not that I'm like laying in bed all day and completely depressed, but there is a certain feeling that I have of kind of like, you know, what what's the point right now? I mean, we're just, we're in this lockdown and we're, you know, work isn't happening right now. Like Hollywood and the industry is kind of shuttered. And so that is an opportunity. I recognize a good opportunity, opportunity for me to, to, double down on the work, the inside job, right? The work that I know uh, will work for me, the prayer, the meditation, getting up, getting at the day, working out. And I have to say, honestly, I have struggled with with all of those things. In fact, the other day I I went and uh, I, I got some weights from a neighbor because you know the gym I go to is closed. So I got some weights from a neighbor. I borrowed the weights and did a little workout and I was like, God, I feel so much better. I have so much energy and I just feel so much better. So I know that that stuff is missing, but I, you know, I I definitely admire having that discipline and I've always admired people who have that discipline and I've always struggled myself to attain it. um, If that makes any sense. Yeah. I think, you know, I think first of all, you're not alone in how you feel. I think everyone's been feeling exactly. I feel like what's the point right now? Like why even get out of bed? You know, I'm not working or this or that or the other thing. So, you know, I put on a bunch of weight for me, you know, and I've never been heavy and like my kids said something and then (laughs) like, it was brutal. Like I've never, I've never had that happen before. So I'm, I'm addressing that, but I saw you in your on your social media on a bike ride, unless you were just wearing a helmet to wear a helmet. I don't know. With a green screen. I was wearing a helmet with a green screen because I I want to project this image on my social media that I'm like this hard charging like adventure seeker. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I think the discipline isn't really it's not like I'm a great guy because I'm disciplined. I think. I just don't want to fucking feel miserable today. Right. And right. it's literally just out of necessity of like, I don't want to feel like shit today because I can easily slip into the other direction where I'm doing nothing. And then a couple of days of that pile up on each other and I feel like shit. So I think it's just mini tasks all day long, just checking the box like Feldy was talking about, like boxing check, jump in the pool check, meditation check, prayer check. Okay. You know, and now I feel different changing your state. Like, what are you going to do to change your state? Because if I get out of bed and get on social media, forget it. It's over. Ooh. Like I'm fucking done. I went off the other day because I, I, I don't know. I did. A, I put a quote on my social media and it was by Columbus. And apparently Columbus has been canceled and everybody hates him. 
And people <sighs> fucking went off on me. They're like, what are you tone deaf? What are you going to post a Hitler quote next? And like, oh, no. do your <laughs> research. And then I, so I took it down, but I was, I was fasting. I was on a 36 hour fast. So I fucking did a video where I was like going off. I was like, I didn't know Columbus was canceled. And I didn't, you know, you know, it's like Martin Luther King cheated on his wife. Should we cancel Martin Luther King day? John, uh, you know, John Lennon beat his wife. Should we not listen to the Beatles? And I was like, you could be fucking mother Teresa on earth doing the greatest work and people would still find something wrong with you and then people started commenting that mother Teresa is not that great and she's like and i was like i can't fucking win like you can't <laughs> fucking win do you remember the, you remember the movie war games yes you remember the end the big revelation at the end was the only way to win is to not play the game <laughs> totally. i think totally. um i think this is where john paul and i probably <clears throat> disagree the most in life you know i have a principle in my life that i try and live by which is i ceased fighting anything and anyone, you know, that I have this, um, when it comes to commenting, when it comes to social media, I don't read comments. I don't, um, I don't post. I, I just, I have quit the debating society because life is too short. What is the price of my serenity? And I don't think that there's any, I think that my serenity is priceless, you know, because if I lose my serenity, my kids suffer, my wife suffers, my work suffers, my relationship with other people suffer. And what is the price? Everyone has an opinion today. I was at a meeting the other day and you know, I could see I was speaking and I could see the comments rolling. I moved, literally moved the Zoom screen lower so I couldn't see them because I just don't want to engage, man. And it's not like I run this yeah. perfect program when it comes to cease fighting anything or anyone. But like for me, my serenity is so goddamn important. I cannot afford to fucking lose it because it affects my sleep, anxiety, depression. All of it is all connected. So I got, I got to stay off it for me. You know, I was going to say, though, that like one of the things that I, one of the things that I also try to remember as we're talking about routines and like if, you know, if you, if you want to win the day, you got to win the morning and, and, and like getting up and getting at it and all that. And one of the things that's been a savior for me of late, especially is that notion that you can start your day over like now, like you can mm. start over right now and not letting myself get on that negative self interject train that I can get on. And by the way, I wake up with it too. It's, it's already leaving the station the second I wake up and it's like, KFOC radio and all those things that we've all talked about where it's negative interject. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're, you're, you know, why aren't you better looking? Why you're going to, you're never going to work again. Your kids are, you know, hate you. You're going to go broke. All those fears, rational, some not, some irrational. Um, that the idea that, you know, even if I start out poorly or I, I'm struggling in a moment that I can, I can still start my day over. And I've done that a lot. Do you late, do anything you know, or, to start your day over? Do you, is it a snap of the fingers? Like I'm starting over here or do you actually have it? Cause I do some breathing exercises to reset my day, but I'm wondering what you do. It's, it's a bit of a prayer. Um, it's a bit of, I think just a, a coming to consciousness that I need it. So it's a pause. It's not anything really physical. There's not a real ritual behind it. Sometimes it's hitting my knees. If it's really bad, if I really need to start over, if like I've gone off on my wife and I know I need to apologize, which she's like pulling teeth to me, like having to apologize to somebody is the 
I don't know why, but it's one of those painful things I have to do is like going and I'm saying, I'm sorry. And I was like, Oh God, it just, it's like, feels like my skin is burning off my body to have to say, I'm sorry to somebody. Um, we, that, that's a whole other topic we can get into, but if, if I'm really in, in dire straits, I'll hit my knees. Uh, you know, I'll say the, you know, the second step prayer, um, third step prayer. I'll, you know, I'll just, I'll say, you know, like God grant me the serenity until I like over and over until it actually sinks in until I actually feel it. Not just, I'm not just going to God grant me the serenity, except things again, but like saying it until I actually am focused on what the words mean. Um, and it, and it's magical, you know, it's like a, it is a magical superpower to be able to connect with whatever, whatever that thing is in your life. Uh, God or you know, spirit or, you know, I, I don't even know, but that I, I'm not even sure what it is for me. I call it God, but it's just, it's kind of a recognition that like, that there's so much, you know, like what you said, John, like I'm powerless over, you know, things and I need to recapture my serenity and stop fighting everything, people, places, and things, and just be in complete acceptance of where I am at that, at that moment. I feel like I'm a professional apologizer at this point. Like, I don't feel, I don't have any problem with it. I just go right in. I just want, I don't, I just want this to be over. I just want to move past this. So I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, and, and I, what I used to have to do was go do this breathwork practice that I do. And then I would go out and then I would go in and apologize. And I wanted to make sure that said, I'm sorry for what I said before breathwork. You know, because it really shifts me into like going like, because it was, it's almost always my ego. Like she said something or something happened or we're arguing. It's usually about the kids, you know? And and I, I feel like it's almost always that. And I just, it's never worth it. Whatever it is, it's never, ever worth it. And it's usually my ego was hurt or my feelings were hurt. And it's just like, it doesn't mean anything in the big picture. Because this shit is not easy. What we're talking about is not easy. I mean, I just read something yesterday. It was like, Marriage is hard. Divorce is hard. You know, pick your hard. And it's, it's just like, <laughs> holy shit, man. Marriage is fucking hard. And, and, and the stuff we're talking about is like, it is truly Jedi shit when it comes to being married and choosing your battles and ceased fighting anything or anyone when it comes to my wife. This shit took years and years of like failure, 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 getting in a fight, sleeping on the couch, sleeping in the downstairs bedroom, driving around in my car because I'm so angry, like years of that until I realized I will never win a fight with my wife ever. And, and, and now I just know that it's not worth it because I never sleep well on the couch. I'd rather sleep in my bed, have a good night's sleep and just say, you know what? You're right. You are right. And I love you, you know? But do you ever say you are right and she realizes you're just saying that because you just don't want to sleep on the couch? Yeah, I buy her flowers. She's like, you're only doing this to fucking whatever because you just don't want to fight anymore. I mean, she, of course, she knows all my moves, all my tricks, but I do it anyway and I feel better. That's the truth. Well, what's the saying that we used to hear all the time? Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy, right? And I want to be happy. I don't care about being right anymore. I think that just comes with maturity. I've, I've gotten mature enough. Where I, don't, I don't have to be right all the time. And I think it was our friend Milton that used to say, like, if you can't stand that your wife leaves the dishes in the sink, then do the fucking dishes. You mm. do them, you know? And that took me years to wrap my brain around. It's like, if I don't like it, then I got to go do the dishes or I got to hire somebody. Come in and uh, yeah, I like Milton used to also used to say, 
if you're tired of people cutting you off on the road, they just start letting them in. And I like, yeah. I, I always love that one too. Yeah. But this but the dishes thing, stuff. the dishes thing is a big battle in my house. Like, cause I'm usually the one doing the dishes while she's watching like, you know, Grey's Anatomy or something. And I'm kind of like, you know, like I'm, st I'm stewing in it. I'm like, no, I'm not doing these dishes. Nobody's thanking me for doing these dishes. And I can't believe I'm, my kids aren't like waking up to just like come and praise me and tell me how great I am. Cause look what I'm doing for everybody. I do go down that kind of path sometimes. I, I will admit to that. Yeah, I think we all do. I don't think you're alone in that. I mean, we all sometimes feel underappreciated or whatever. And it's like you were saying earlier about like, I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not hairy enough. Right. My, we all get that. My wife is, is pretty great. She's, she's amazing. And she came in just right before this podcast and she had been, she had got like a consult for getting this microblading on her eyebrows. And she's like, my eyebrows are terrible. And what, you know, and I was like, you're talking to a guy with no fucking eyebrows right now. Like you're, I don't know. I think you're looking for the sympathy from the wrong person. Like I'll pay for the microblading, just get it done. You know, like. Yeah. Well, they say where they say pain is the great touchstone for growth. And I think that, I mean, that's, that's the thing about like, at least my marriage, which I'm whatever, 25 years in now, it's like, I, <clears throat> I, I only through suffering and pain have I realized what I just don't want, how I don't want to live anymore. I just don't want to live that way. And I'm the same way. It's like, I look at, you know, my wife comes and complains about her nails or whatever the fuck it is. And like, I'm the breadwinner of the house. And like, so I look at the dishes and I think, dude, this is, you know, I have my job, I provide for us and you've got your job. And it's like, but no, Milton is right. If it's, if it's bugging me, I can't, she's not a fucking, indentured servant it's not like that it's like we're both humans and we want the same goal we want a clean house we want to be good parents and we want to have a good marriage you have a great maid though too feldy i do yeah I fuck yeah i do <laughs> lorena rules man she's the best dude this woman walked from el salvador to fucking america she walked over the course of four months with 30 people two of them died on this walk it's like I mean, talk about fucking drive. This woman, like, I see her and I'm like, I worship this woman. I know it's so funny when you hear people's stories like that and you just think, God, we're like the softest generation or, or the, the generation behind us. You know what I mean? They're like, I got to stay home on Zoom. You know what I mean? And these are, these are people who walk for four months to, to cross into a better land. You know, it's insane. There's like, there's the great generation of, you know, our forefathers and great, great grandparents and all who stormed the beaches of Normandy and, you know, made those ultimate sacrifices so we could live free in democracy. And, and then there's our generation who's like, you know, I'm just not wearing my mask at Gelson's. I'm just not doing it. <laughs> I know. You can't control me. It's so, it's so bad. It's so fucking bad. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you, Chad, I know that you, you know, you and I are, I would consider us really good friends. And um, I saw you, uh, I saw you a few years back at, um, at Sting's play that he did with his wife, Trudy. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I saw, I saw you there and the last, the last ship. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and you and I just, I think we have very similar musical tastes. You know, we've talked a lot about this, but um. You know, when I was growing up, like I saw Bruce Springsteen as this, like, you know, like a lot of people had a misconception about him born in the USA with blue jeans and the bandana. And I thought that he was this pro America, like, let's go working class kind of guy. And um, I, one time when I was on tour with Goldfinger, like there was nothing on TV except for HBO. 
and there was it was fucking Bruce Springsteen live. I'm like, not this fucking guy. I'm going to have to hear about fucking America, you know? And then he comes on the TV. He comes on TV and he's like, and I, all I hear is tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. And I just start hysterically crying. Like the way he delivered this message, I was like, holy shit. Three months later, I'm playing New Jersey, like this sold out wow. convention center in New Jersey. Max Weinberg's son is a huge Goldfinger fan. Max Weinberg, Bruce Spring Springsteen's drummer, is there. And I go, Max, will you play a song with us? So we played my song, Fuck Ted Nugent, this anti-hunting song. And Max Weinberg, I was playing it too slow. And I go, Max, you're playing it too slow. I'm the fucking boss now, is what I said to Max. And it was like, it was just this epic moment in my life. And I guess I just wanted to hear like your, how much music plays into your life and what it's done for you, you know? Uh, well, first of all, that's a genius story. I love that you're in New Jersey with the mighty Max Weinberg and you're telling him, you know. Well, what's interesting about that, I, I digress for a moment, is um, I've, I've known Max a little bit. I've gotten to know a lot of it because I'm kind of an E Street groupie and huge Bruce worshiper. I was Have asking you seen the Bruce on Broadway. Have you seen that? The Springsteen on oh. Broadway? Feldy, you need to watch that because he tells the story of like, oh, I talk about escaping out, but I, I still live a couple miles from where I grew up. And he, he basically says his whole life is bullshit. It's, un, it's unbelievable. It's unreal. Yeah, have, you, have you not seen it, John? No, I haven't. You have to watch oh. it. It will blow your mind. Yeah, he pulls the curtain back. He pulls the curtain back on everything, which is what is so genius about it. And I did see it. I got to see it in, in New York when it was, you know, live. And all my friends are like, oh, my God, you're going to weep. You're going to cry. And I was like, you know, as soon as somebody says you're going to cry, I'm like, well, watch me. I'm not going to. And I literally I think about four minutes in, I just started weeping and I like turned to my wife and I pointed at my tears. And she's like, oh, you're such a sap. I'm like. It's Bruce. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. But um, anyway, Max was saying, just you might find this interesting. Max was saying that they didn't have a rhythm section. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, Bruce is a rhythm section. He goes, everything, everything that we do is cued from Bruce. And the way he got, Max Weinberg famously got that gig answering a, an ad in the Village Voice for a drummer. And he said the way he got it was, he said, you know, I'm not the greatest drummer in the world. There are certainly guys who are playing better than I did, but I just watched Bruce the whole time in my audition. And I just, every time he did something, I just knew that he was cueing me into timing. And I don't know technically what the terms are, but like the timing and where I was supposed to be playing and like, you know, this, the, the tempo. And so I just thought that was really interesting because I've always been fascinated with Bruce and the show of Bruce. I remember seeing him the first time one of the first times I saw Bruce play, he went on this rant about a political rant about, you know, like the state of America and also about his father and the difficulties he had with his father. And by the way, I think, you know, by now, John, that you know, born in the USA, the cover of born in the USA, he's pissing on the American flag, right? Like you got that, right? That. That, yeah, mm -hmm. that's that. Yeah. That's what he's doing. And born in the USA is definitely not a patriotic song. It's, about a government that basically sends people to go and fight a war and come back and 
you know, and, and leave them high and dry. But anyway, um, so Bruce is going on this rant and I'm hearing him talk and I'm getting all emotional, all choked up inside. And I'm thinking, yeah, man, I've had struggled with my, you know, relationship with my dad and I can so relate to this. And this is so cool. And then I went and saw him, I think a couple nights later up in San Jose and he gave the exact same speech. And I thought, I felt a little betrayed, you know, like, I feel like I was privileged to be in that arena that night. The first time I was like, he's talking to me, man. He's like, he's really like letting it all out there and being so vulnerable. And I'm really privileged to be connecting with this moment. And then I go to San Jose and he says the same thing. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, do wait, that, that was, you, you were talking to me the other night. How could you be doing the same thing every night? So like, I realize it's all, it, apparently he's such and by the way the term the boss was a derogatory term to begin with and did you know that like he never liked that he bruce did not like being called the boss but it was because he was such a hard driver and so meticulous i mean i think the making of born uh, of uh, darkness in the edge of town took like a year and a half and he was like just obsessive about it you know he his his shows that were like four and a half hours long bruce has been very open about his depression which is something I relate to because I've suffered with depression my life in my life. And he's been really open about his battle with depression and how like in the eighties and nineties, these marathon shows that he used to put on was because he, he just needed that, you know, like we all do, he needed that kind of uh, adulation and that validation and that's something to flood his body with endorphins. And so he would just keep playing. It was like one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. Everybody's like, Bruce is such a genius. And it's like, yeah, he needed that to fill him to like, and so it was interesting to watch his wife come on the scene, Patty Scalfa. And I remember my brother was telling me this cool story about when she came on and they started having kids and he's very, Bruce is very open about this. She was like, Bruce, you have to wake up in the morning. You're sleeping through your, your, your kid's childhood and you're missing everything. Like you're in bed all day and making music all night. Meantime, there's a whole life happening that you're missing. And this is something I've related to, too, about like getting up in the morning, not wanting to get up at 630 to make fucking sandwiches for my kids, but knowing that it's temporary and, and we don't get this time back. Right. And this was something I related to that I heard Bruce, you know, had struggled with as well, which was his wife's like, you know, you got to get up and make these kids breakfast because there's going to come a day soon enough where they're out of the house and gone. You will have, you will have missed this experience. And so, you know, that I can relate to that a lot too, because I had that with my dad where my dad was never around. I didn't ever live with my, I never lived with my father. I would visit him and we would have, you know, like a week, every other week when I was a little kid, I'd go and stay at his apartment and it was always like good time, Charlie. And then in the summers, when we moved out to California from Ohio, I would go and stay two months with him, but I never lived with my dad. And so you know, my dad and I both share this kind of sadness that's unspoken when we see each other that we'll never get that time back. And, uh, you know, I've gone from I've gone from Bruce Springsteen into my own personal experience, but it's no, you're just on an the, interesting you're topic. on the right podcast. You're on the right track. I mean, Feldy and I struggle with our fathers. It's, the, it's both of our struggles. And, you know, so you're right in the right spot. And I'm getting a little emotional here. You hearing you share that. I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, well, you know, it's interesting, like, it's fueled me as a parent, that sadness, and that there's like, that the gift of the sadness, the gift of that, 
loss that I have and that longing that I have is like a living amends. That is, you know, I'm going to be there for my kids come hell or high water, you know, no matter how I feel in the morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be present in my kid's life. Yeah. My son this morning, I was getting coffee and he gave me this book. He's like, read this book to me. And I started to go like, no, I have to start work. I have to go like answer these fucking emails. Like the emails can wait. Right. So I stopped and I was like, you know, dude, the emails can wait. Like they're not going anywhere. You've got all day. So I stopped and I, I read him this book and it's just a moment that, you know, he was sitting on my lap and he's four and a half and you know, I'll never have that moment again. It's just a beautiful moment. And I'm so glad that because we've learned what we've learned, it's like, I can just stop and take that moment and spend that time with my son this morning. You know, wow. that's profound. That's really beautiful. You know, as I, as I'm hearing you, John Paul and seeing you, um, you know, be, have your heart filled and, and get emotional. I'm, I'm envious in a way because I, um, you know, I'm able to become vulnerable, but yeah. as an actor, I've learned how to turn it on and off. Um, you know, I've been able to use it to my advantage. You know, winning an Emmy was one way. One way I was able to do that role was having being able to access this pain. You know, this really dark place in my life, and this this kind of secret that I have, and this this painful. It's just kind of an omnipresent pain <clears throat> that's there, and. I remember like as a guy, and this is interesting to talk to, you know, two men. And this is a, such a great experience for me because I'm surrounded by women in my house. I have three daughters <laughs> and my wife, so I don't get to talk to, to dudes that much anymore. Um, but men, especially, I don't know about you guys, but I remember like, you know, as a six-year-old boy having to say goodbye to my dad, right? Like how just painful that was and that feeling of that lump in your throat and that feeling of in your stomach that you felt like you're going to throw up and I try to push it down and finally it would just come up and I you know as a six seven eight nine years old I would just weep like uncontrollably whenever I would have to leave because I just never saw him but then I remember going you know what this is painful I don't like this uh I hear this message in society that boys don't cry you know toughen up uh don't be a pussy and I and I remember learning how not to cry and I remember learning that skill of like hardening my heart. I remember going like, my heart feels like, you know, it's going to literally burst and break in half and I will die from this pain. And this is, you know, I'm thinking like I'm like 11 or 12 years old. And I remember think, learning like, okay, Chad, you've got to man up. You need to be stronger, quote unquote, and you need to learn how not to cry and not feel these feelings. And it was really, really like such a disservice and so um, destructive. And I think so commonplace in our society for men to be taught this lesson. And I don't, you know, I don't mean that it's overtly taught or like there's any maliciousness behind this teaching as much as it's misdirected. And John Paul, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on this because you work in this field. Yeah, there's an incredible documentary called The Mask We Live In. And it's what we do to boys when they're really young is we tell them like, don't cry, be a man, be a man. And so watching that was really profound for me. And I tell every class I do, I tell people like a lot of people got this message growing up that crying is wrong and that, you know, it's, it's weak and it's a sign of weakness. 
And you have to give yourself permission to cry. It's okay to cry. I have to give myself permission to cry. And actually crying, listen, why, why does it exist if it's not necessary? Like it's a necessary function. There are people who come to me in my classes and they'll go, that's the first time I've, I've cried in like three years. And I'm like, you're gonna fucking die. You're not a robot. We're supposed to cry. It actually strengthens your immune system. There's a chemical that's released when you cry and it strengthens your immune system, but it also completes the stress cycle. So a lot of the stress or emotion or stuff that we've been pushing down and the reason people cry in my classes a lot is because they the trauma happens and then it gets stuck in the nervous system and then they finally release it and they let this big cry out. And I really feel like I, I, I've been sensitive my whole life and I spent the first half of my life trying not to be sensitive, trying to hide my sensitivity. And I've spent the last half of my life just allowing it, just let it be. Like if somebody wants to judge me because I, I'm, I'm a guy that cries, like so fucking be it, that's on them. I'm gonna be who I wanna be. I wanna feel everything. I wanna feel the love for my children. And then with that comes the anger of some fucking person pissing me off. I want to feel it all. You know, I can't, I can't just allow the love and not allow the bad shit. I have to, I have to decide. Do you, you know, you have to decide, do you want to feel it all? Or do you want to feel none of it? Cause you don't get to pick and choose if you're going to open yourself up. I don't know wow. if that makes sense or not. Makes a lot of sense. What do you, what think, do you like you touched on, you know, Bruce, I read Bruce's book and, and he talks a lot about his depression and you were saying that you struggle with that sometimes as well. What do you do to combat that? To well, you know, it's, it's funny. I was just having a, a long conversation with a friend of mine about this. Um, I, I believe it's my belief and you know, not a doctor, but my belief is that a lot of depression is chemical imbalances in the brain. Um, and I have medicated myself through, uh, you know, prescriptions from doctors. This is not self-medicated. This is not somebody suggested, hey, I think you should be on meds. Uh, this is, you know, two to three different psychiatrists, a lot of work in analysis. Um, and so, you know, I fought it tooth and nail. I'll just be very frank about it because I think it can help maybe help somebody. I was very much against the idea of medication and very much against the idea and felt like it was a weakness. And I was somehow admitting defeat to something if I were to actually take an antidepressant. And so I didn't do it for a long, 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 long time. And, um, you know, and then I got sober um, and it helped a great deal, but it also didn't take away the core of what, for me, what was what I was diagnosed with, which is clinical depression. And so after about the third uh, psychiatrist's um, diagnosis that was exactly the same as the two before, I decided that I would give it a try. And so, you know, I very reluctantly tried antidepressants and, you know, it, it, it worked. It didn't, it didn't alter my, my consciousness. It didn't make me feel high. I wish it made me feel high sometimes. I'm like, God, I would love to have a nice little buzz right now. But it, it just is, as the doctor said, it would kind of, it, it took a very cluttered mind um, and ordered things so that I could get to each item instead of looking at this huge clutter in my mind, which seemed insurmountable. And I would try, you know, meditation. And I would try prayer and I would try exercise and I would try these things. 
and and I get relief, but then it was temporary. And maybe that's because I didn't have the discipline to continue, um, or I just simply suffered with uh, you know clinical depression. I also, it's my belief, and I think I've from what I've read and some of the science that I understand is, you know, and this is another, it goes back to being a parent and being uh, present in, in my kid's life. Um, I, I think that the zero to six years old, there are, there are pathways in the brain um, and synapses and pathways that are being hardwired. And it's, and you know, a lot of the science has proven that the, the brain is being mapped in those first years. And so, um, I look at my zero to six, and by the time I was six, I was uh, about, I was meeting my, uh, I was meeting a doctor who would become my third father, um, my mother's boyfriend. So, but, so in six short years, I, my mom and dad got divorced when I was nine months old. Um, my mom met a man, married him, they were together. And by the time I was you know, five and a half, six, they were divorced. And their, their, their divorce was ugly. You know, there was a lot of not physical abuse, but verbal, which I think, you know, in some ways is, is just as bad. It was just, you know, like it was a household of screaming and door slamming. And, you know, for me, it was terror and it was hiding under a bed. Um, and, you know, it wasn't because I was afraid I was going to get punched or beaten, but it was a, a fear that like I was going to die from what was happening in the house. So I think back in that time and I go, wow, you know, that, that set a lot of stuff in my brain, you know, that set a lot of patterns in my brain. And when I get scared or I get, I go right back to being that six, seven year old boy hiding under the bed um, when I get really stressed out and scared about something. So um, to your question about how do I handle depression? One is, I think the first thing is really acknowledging, you know, that I have it and that I'm susceptible to it. And I think it takes many, many different forms. It's not like, I sit around when I'm in an episode of feeling depressed going like, oh, I'm going to kill myself. It's more like it's subtle. It can be very, very, very subtle. And I may not even recognize that I'm depressed. Like the other day, I, I did grieve a little. I didn't have the kind of openness, John Paul, that I see you having that I admire so much. But I just, I felt low energy. I just didn't really, I just, I don't even, it's, I was depressed. Um, you know, nothing was, was st striking me. I had no inspiration. I just wanted to go back to bed, which I didn't, but I did want to. Um, and I kind of had that moment of like, I was like, wait a minute, 230,000 Americans have died in less than a year. They have died. I know one of them was a very dear friend of mine in New York. I know many people who have been sick and suffering and you know, that I can get mad about this pandemic and I can get mad about coronavirus and I can get, you know, tied up in, in the, po the politics of it, you know, and how it's been politicized. And, you know, Trump did this and he didn't do that and Biden's gonna do this and he won't do that. And I thought, you know, like at the end of the day, it's nobody's fault. You know, we are vulnerable as a species and we're facing a pandemic that is, that will actually shorten our lifespans. My brother-in-law is a psycho is a is a research pathologist for a, a big drug company, and he works with cells trying to create cancer drugs. And he said, with the introduction of COVID nineteen, which they've all known, COVID is not new. We've they've been studying COVID. It's been in uh, livestock, and they've been trying to figure out ways 
to, to vaccinate against it for livestock. But um, he said, you know, our life expectancy as a species has just gone down because of COVID-19. And I think the enormity of it hit me. And I was, I just thought, you know, of course you feel depressed. We're, you know, I'm pretending like, we're not pretending, but we're doing the best we can to create a normalcy in our lives. Like, you know, we're trying to all soldier on as though, you know, everything's going to be normal again. And by the way, well, we, it will, we'll get a vaccine. This will enter into our gene pool. You know, there'll become herd immunity. COVID-19 will become the flu. It will always be with us. We'll have it, you know, like three years from now and say, oh God, I was so sick. I had COVID and you'll get over it. And yes, it will kill a lot of people who are, who are vulnerable and, and have pre-existing conditions, but not like it has in the early days. But our lives have changed. COVID has changed our lives. And there's no denying that. And I just have been so caught up in, you know, how we could have avoided it. And, you know, it's like magical thinking, you know, like I'm having this magical thinking of like how we could have avoided getting here and, you know, what didn't happen and what did happen. And, and you know what, it's here. Like we have COVID in our, in our society and, and, and it's going to shorten our life expectancy and it has altered our lives forever. Yeah. And that I was grieving and I, you know what? And, 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 and so John, to your point about depression, I didn't take a pill in that moment, but to adopt what I think you teach John Paul was, I just realized that's what was eating at me. That's what was hurting. And that's why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And, you know, giving that space and, and giving that, um, uh, recognizing and, and in a weird way, respecting that made it okay. And I was able to, to move past it and, yeah. and not feel as, as depressed about it, but, you know, understand that, yeah, this is a reality that we're all facing. I think it was Freud that said that unexpressed emotions will always come forth in uglier ways that, mm -hmm. that, that emotion lives inside of us. And for me, it would be like exploding at someone in the line at Starbucks because they don't know what they want to order. But I think now I'm current with my emotions and, and, and hearing you share about that, it's just, it's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. It's just like, I think that like, for me, depression scares the living shit out of me. And so I don't ever allow it. Like they say, I've heard someone say that depression is like inward and anger is outward. And so I'd rather be the angry guy. <laughs> and that's why I was known for so many years as like the angry guy. Cause if I let it go the other way, which is inward and I start to feel it about myself, I can't handle it. It scares me. I've lost a lot of friends to suicide. Mm. I lost someone I sponsored for 10 years, very close to me. And it still hurts to this day. The grief is still there. And so yeah. I just, I don't want to feel it. And I started to feel it in this pandemic. I started to get depressed because, you know, I've worked really hard to build this breathwork thing. And I, was, and I had all these big events I was going to speak and teach at this year that got canceled and my retreat got canceled and all my trainings and my whole year got wiped out. And it looks like this next year is nothing's, nobody's fucking breathing together in a room. So two years no. of my life is set back and I don't know. And I started to get depressed and like I started to eat and I don't want to feel that. And um, the thing that's helped me a lot is um, whatever you focus on expands. 
So just focusing on like, oh, can I just focus on that my kids are healthy? Okay, and then I get to spend this time with my kids and that I, I'm fine financially and that, you know, I have friends that love me that I love. And like, so just focusing on those things that are good, that are working in my life. But I still have to acknowledge the feeling that like, this sucks, you know? So how do I acknowledge those feelings and allow them to be what they wanna be and let them, you know, the feeling requires to be felt. I have to feel it and then go, okay, that's how I feel. And now what can I do? And I think Feldy can speak a lot to what you were talking about, Chad, about depression. Cause I think he's got a lot of experience in that area way more than I do. Right, Feld? Yeah, for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you though, have you ever played your daughter, Mabel, the Goldfinger song, Mabel? <laughs> of course, Mabel's the bomb. <laughs> Every time me? I play that song, I think about your daughter. I'm just like, this is, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever met a Mabel before your daughter. I, she's, well, you knew, somehow you knew you were channeling. She is, my, my daughter is, Mabel is the bomb. And um, yeah, of course I played it for her. It's, it's, uh, it's, she, she loves that song. Eldie's going to come play it for her next birthday party. Any um, dude. Any dude, I got you know, listen, that, that, I don't know if I could afford that, but that would be, that would be epic. <laughs> but anyways, listen, we got to, we, let, let me ask you a few of these questions because we got to wrap it up. Uh, which superpower would you most like to have and why? Uh, which, um, my, uh, you know, I think this, geez, I was going to say x-ray vision. Maybe. <laughs> you mean like through clothes? Yeah, but, but that's I've the been, greatest one ever. I love that yeah. you said that. It's like my dream. vision. So I could see through clothes, but here's the thing about that. You know, I remember when I first went to a nude beach in St. Bart and I was like, I was like, oh, this is going to be so epic. I'm going to go to a nude beach in St. Bart's. This is going to be amazing. And I got there and I realized really quickly that like nude beaches, you 99% of the people on nude beaches, you do not want to see naked. No. And, and actually this day on this nude beach, the first time I was ever there, I look up and there's this gangly milky white with a big dark hair dude in like a red thong walking up the beach he literally looked like he was like from outer space or something and I was like he's like six foot eight I'm like what the fuck who is that like what is, where did this guy land and he gets closer and I realize it's Rick Ocasek from the cars <laughs> and I'm like I'm like, oh my God, fuck, I love, I worship this guy's music. I fucking loved the cars growing up. Like, it's Rick Ocasek. And I'm like, if Rick Ocasek is here, maybe Paulina Protoskova is here. Yeah. So unfortunately she wasn't. Yes, yeah, supermodels are at, not on the nude beaches at all. No, I, no, they're definitely. So I don't know if x-ray vision is really what, the, like that might be kind of a curse. I don't know, I'd like to be able to fly. Like I just, I just want to just set off and just fly. That's that? a popular one. If you could make up a rule or a law that everyone had to follow, what would it be and why? Don't be a dick. Yeah. Just be kind. How about just, just, how about just do the right thing? Yeah. Like, Here, I here's it. another, this is a good question for you. Which character from a TV show or a movie do you wish that you had gotten to play? Oh, Jesus. There are so many. Just pick one. Just throw one out there. Okay. I'm going to tell, I'm going to say one. I know this isn't rapid fire answers, probably not exactly what you're looking for, Sorry. but we were, but I'm going to, I'm going to actually bring this all full circle. Okay. <laughs> I really am. So we were talking about um, how uh, you get John uh, Feldy. We were talking about 
how you get envious, how, how like you can't let somebody's success, if they go on, you can't like, you can't be in that headspace of like comparing yourself to others, right? You can't think about, oh, what could have been and why did that band fuck that band? You know, I, I was producing them and then they left and now they're cute, whatever it is. So for me, I had a lesson in that early on. And that was with River Phoenix. I was up, I, I flew myself to New York for a movie called Running on Empty. And it was uh, the, the, the great Sidney Lumet was directing this movie. Great, one of the great directors of all time. And um, this role wide opened up and they said, look, if you fly yourself to New York, you'll get to meet Sidney Lumet. And so I was like, I'm going to fly myself to New York and meet him. So I go in his office. He's eating a ham sandwich. I'll never forget. He's got mustard all over his face and he's so disarming. And I was like, oh my God, this is the great Sidney Lumet. And, I'm, and he's putting me at ease and he goes, sit down and we read it. And he says, can you stay tomorrow? And I want you to read with uh, the other cast members. So I read with the other cast members and I'm pretty close to getting this role. Go back home, get a letter in the mail. And it's like, dear Chad, I have this frame, by the way, dear Chad, I'm going with someone else in the role uh, on this movie. And so I didn't get the part and it went to River Phoenix who ended up uh, being nominated for an Academy Award for best uh, actor for his role in uh, Running on Empty. And I remember thinking like, fuck that guy, you know, like I can't deny that he's really good. And I actually, there was a girl I wanted to hook up with that he, he was dating. And so like, we had like, he was, a real nemesis. He was my fucking nemesis. And then I'll never forget. I was, at, I was at a Hughes market. <laughs> uh, I think it was like Halloween or the day after Halloween, the day before Halloween and KNX news radio here in Los Angeles announced that River Phoenix had died oh. and he was, well, I don't know, 24. 23 and I actually cried I remember sitting in my car and crying and I cried because I was grateful to River obviously it was a tragedy but I was also grateful to River for teaching me a really hard lesson which was that everybody has their own path and his was tragic and it was an incredible loss but it also taught me a lesson which was you know that we we really have to just focus on our own path and and not let that stuff you know, not be envious and jealous and let that stuff, not that I don't get that way, but I really did in that moment, I realized, you know what, there's room for everybody when it comes to, you know, actors and, and, and having a career. So I don't get jealous or envious of other people's careers anymore. I just, I realize, you know, there's, you know, why not me, but also why not you? Like there's yeah. room for everybody. I love that message. Every, you know, we there. all have our own path and there's room for everybody. It's a beautiful I message. That. I was there that night. Um, I was there at the Viper room that night. He died. It was so, oh. it was very, um, man, it was heavy. Like this, he just, because he, he just fell down at the bar and then they, we, you know, everyone carried him outside to the street on Sunset Boulevard. And you could, it actually felt like the lights got dimmer when it mm. happened felt like this heaviness like people people didn't know it was him at first people just said oh this guy passed out but it was like there was this light that left that room when he when he died it was it was fucking crazy oh jesus i didn't know you were there yeah i never heard that wow. story either feldy is the king of stories like he just comes out of it with like nowhere i've known him for 20 years i thought i every time i think i've heard everything he comes up with something i've never heard it's crazy feldy the guy was a legend man yeah. yeah, absolutely. What a loss. Chad, thank you so much for coming on today, man. It's been one of my favorite ever podcasts with you. Okay. So great talking to you. I feel like we could talk to you for hours, but I know uh, I respect your time. And, you know, thank you so much, man. I love you and, and, and your family and just, I'm, you know, I, 
sending you the best, man. They stay well, with it. And I'm going to reach out to you. I want to send you my class. I want you to try this weird breathing thing that I do because I think you're going to trip on it. I think it'll be really I, cool. I would love to do that. And listen, you two have both been a great inspiration to me. And, and I love you both. And, you know, you're both great fathers. And, you both, you know, what I love about both of you guys is, is like you're both walking this path, but you're also able to like dip out of it for a minute and recognize like John Paul, like still fucking yell at somebody at Starbucks because they, you know, don't know what they want to order. And John and, you know, Felda, you just, you know, I, I like you're, you, you never, you never cease to amaze me at all the ways in which you show your humanity. And, and like, I love the way you just charge life. Actually, the other day I was on one of those bike rides and I went, and I was like, I was like, I'm going to try this. And I yelled like, I love my life. And I like, I felt like, oh no, like somebody, somebody's going to look at me. And, but I was like, it worked. So that was a little call. That was a little, I was saying a little prayer to you, Feldy. You know, um, you know, John Paul, uh, Chad and I were both co-secretaries at the same time at Bread and Roses. We shared that, uh, we shared that year yeah. together. It was so great. And the end of the year, we were both like, because we both had to speak and we both just tried to top each other's talk. We were like, I'm going to fucking outspeak him. It was, no, it was, there was no, there's no topping Feldy. We all know this. It was great, man. It was so good. Epic. Thanks again, man. Love you, buddy. I love you, buddy. I got thanks. Love you guys too. do y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcast